Where you gonna be standing when it comes? Hello, and welcome to another episode of New World Coming, an interview series produced by the People's Forum. Today, our host, James Counts Early, scholar and activist, is joined by Zuleika Margarita Rome Guerra, director of Afro American Studies at Casa de las Americas in Havana, Cuba. Founded by revolutionary Aide Santa Maria, Casa de las Americas develops and fosters sociocultural relationships between institutions and peoples across Latin America. Growing up in socialist Cuba, Zuleika has fought to deepen the advances of the Cuban Revolution through analysis and through writing about culture, race, and identity. In this episode, they cover the history of Cuba's struggles for independence, anti-racism work under socialism, and what the ongoing struggle for self-determination in Cuba can teach us about fighting for our own liberation. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for future episodes and other education and cultural content, and follow the People's Forum on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for other updates. We hope you enjoy this important exchange between James and Zuleika Rome Guerra, and continue to stay tuned for more New World Coming episodes. Welcome to New World Coming, the People's Forum's series of political interviews and education. Our topic for today is Socialist Cuba. How do Cubans discuss, debate, and actively engage the nexus of national identity and racial identity and working class perspectives in a socialist revolution? Many Marxists have posited that racism can only be eliminated under socialism. However, within Cuba, there is an important discussion and debate going on expressed by patriots in Cuba who describe themselves as black or mestizo, some describing themselves as Afro-Cubans, as well as their Euro-Cuban compatriots who have acknowledged that racism and discrimination exist in socialist Cuba to be distinguished from how it exists in other areas of the Americas, particularly the United States. This issue has arisen as a major issue of public policy in the organization of Cuban citizens looking at the history of African contributions, are talking about the new economic situation and the extent to which it is racialized in areas like tourism. But it's also expressed in the highest levels of governance, with President Diaz-Canal having established and leading a commission against racism and discrimination. Ultimately, however, it is the Cuban people, not just their sons and daughters who are in government, who will be the ultimate arbiters of how this question is handled. And today we are pleased to have a Cuban patriot of much renown, Zuleika Romay Guerra, who is the director of Afro-American Studies at the renowned Casa de las Americas Art and Culture Research Center. Welcome, Zuleika. 
Well, James, thank you for the opportunity to talk about these relevant issues from Cuba and to answer these important questions which are decisive in clarifying the paths, the objectives, and the scope of the struggle of Afro-descendants in Cuba, the United States, and other Afro-American countries. So from your ideological and political uh, viewpoints, as well as your personal and professional experience, please give us your analysis on, on what challenges did Cuban society uh, and its revolutionary government face regarding this nexus of national identity and racial identity uh, with the 1959 Cuban Revolution, in which Cuba then subsequently declared itself as a socialist republic. What do you think are the advances, uh, as well as the errors and failures, uh, that should be identified um, in order to really address the issue? You asked me about the challenges the Cuban Revolution has had to face, and I would begin by reminding us that the Cuban society, as well as the, that of the United States and Brazil, are examples of what historians have called the second phase of plantation economies. In other words, they were territories where slavery developed extensively, where all the mechanisms of oppression and overexploitation were developed in order to obtain the highest possible gains, and where slavery began to decline when its economic possibilities were exhausted and the system itself began to represent a danger to the political stability of society at the time. There is something particular about Cuban history, and that is the unique role of Africans and their descendants in the struggle for independence. In the case of Spanish colonialism, over the course of 30 years, Cuba fought three wars of liberation against Spanish colonial oppression. What happened? In the little war of 1879, the role of the Africans and above all of Cubans of African descent, of black Cubans, is undeniable. Black Cubans made up more than two thirds of the troops of the Cuban Liberating Army and they formed 40% of the officers. In the second war of independence, 17 black men reached the rank of general in that army. Therefore, when the negotiations between the governments of Spain and the United States ended after the War of 1898, which took place in Paris and which the Cubans were ignored and totally excluded from, the political weight and role of black women and men in Cuba could not be ignored. The first Republican constitution was approved by a constituent assembly in 1901, a body that was controlled and continuously pressured by the United States government. Nevertheless, this constituent assembly managed to resist the pressures enough so that the first Cuban constitution, like that of the United States, recognized the citizenship of people with certain qualities, like those who could read and write and who own land in Cuba. A constitution that recognizes the citizenship only of the literate or of property owners excluded most of the African descendant peoples who participated in the War of Independence. But the Cuban Constitution of 1901 grants citizenship to all men over 21 years of age residing in the territory of Cuba and contains an article endorsing the Cuban nationality of formerly enslaved Africans living in Cuba at the time. Therefore, when the Cuban Republic was established on May 20th, 1902, it was not possible to replicate anything similar to the Jim Crow laws of the post-Reconstruction United States. It was not possible to exclude African descendants from citizenship. It is not possible to deny what the Republic of Cuba owes to black Cubans and mestizos. 
Then there begins a double game in which there is a social discourse that proclaims equality, saying that there are no special privileges granted to anyone in Cuba, neither by social class nor by skin color. But there is a social reality in which things do not happen with that freedom and with that equality. Yet there is a myth the so-called history of the racial fraternity that existed between whites and blacks in the Cuban camps when they fought against the Spanish army. This myth of racial fraternity had no basis in the social reality of this time because black Cubans had fewer opportunities to access good jobs, very limited access to secondary education, and even more to university education. They were discriminated against in certain public spaces, primarily spaces of entertainment and recreation. And there were a series of stereotypes that typify people of African descent as illiterate, unintelligent, rude, unwilling to work, and less civilized than whites. This whole symbolic, ideological, and cultural system of inferiority of Black people was working in contrast with a constitution and an official discourse that said that in Cuba, we were all equal. So black people during the first half of the 20th century had to maneuver, had to use and try and take advantage of what was officially established to defend themselves and find weapons to confront a social practice that continued to make them inferior and discriminate against them. That is the context for the revolution when it triumphed in 1959. So given the historical context and analysis that, that, that you've elaborated, Zuleika, how does the arrival of the, of the 1959 Cuban Revolution change the official rhetoric and, and the contradictory social and legal practices uh, that had been going on about this myth of, of unity? That is why the first revolutionary policies very radical policies, which are measures aimed at destroying all the infrastructure created by colonialism and capitalism to subordinate and internalize the impoverished people, women, people of African descent, peasants, where the agrarian reform, the urban reform, the literacy campaign, the nationalization of education, the democratization of employment, and the democratization of public spaces. Those who benefit the most are the masses, the people who for the first time have guarantees and social support to advance more quickly are primarily the peasants and the African descendants. That's why there were so many African descendants who were part of the 26th of July movement and participated in the clandestine struggle against Batista's dictatorship. Although some people have told me, well, there are very few black people pictured in the photographs of Fidel's Liberation Army driving into Havana. I tell them there are few black seen on top of the tanks because the social composition of the 26th of July movement in the urban areas were mostly white workers, students, and professionals from the middle classes. And in the countryside, peasants, still mostly white people. Let's not forget that at the beginning of the 20th century, when the multinational U.S. companies began to intervene in the Cuban countryside, especially in the eastern region of the country, they did so by displacing the peasantry 
turning small landowners into sharecroppers, appropriating land that didn't have a clear legal claim over it. And all this affects African descendants who begin to migrate to the cities to seek employment in the industrial sector and in other equally poorly paid jobs. But just because the 26th of July movement had that social composition and the photographs of the revolutionary triumph don't show many black faces does not mean that black people did not join the revolution. It doesn't mean that black people didn't participate from day one in the tasks of the revolution. So for the Cuban revolution, it was not a problem of reconciling national identity with racial identity. With the aspirations of people born on the island as Cuban nationals and the aspirations of people of darker complexion, black and mestizo Cubans, because that interweaving, that tight weave between the racial and the national began to form at the end of the 19th century in the struggles for Cuban independence. And that is why, unlike our brothers from the United States in Cuba, it is not easy to find a person who feels first black and then Cuban. Most dark colored Cubans, most Cubans of African descent feel first Cuban and then black, or in the best of the cases, black and Cuban in equal parts, but not black first, because for more than 150 years of struggle for independence, there is this idea that Cuba comes first and all the other differences can be resolved. But the first priority is Cuba and its ideals of independence and national sovereignty. You know, I, I encounter many uh, progressives and socialists uh, in Cuba, and particularly outside Cuba, who get very defensive when you raise the issue about racism in Cuba. This despite the fact that Cuban patriotic citizens are organizing around the issue, and despite the fact that uh, the Union of Artists and Writers uh, have had long-term projects focusing on this issue, as well as despite the fact that the president of the country has established a presidential commission, and which he convenes. Uh, here in the United States, for example, uh, if you raise a critique about uh, racism in Cuba, uh, sometimes people push back and say, well, you're aiding and abetting U.S. imperialism to undermine Cuba. I guess my point of view, and I'd like to know what you think about it, is that for those of us who are deeply supportive of the Cuban Revolution and who are truly interested in the actual development of socialism, not some abstract idea, but what are the virtues that are being developed? What are the strengths that are being developed? And in that context, what are errors? Because we are human beings, uh, not gods. Uh, I think we should look at these issues in order to better inform our solidarity and support the Cuban uh, project. The first stage of the Cuban Revolution is the 30 years between 1959 and 1989 which is characterized by a very consistent horizontal social organization. In other words, the economic and legal infrastructure of racism and discrimination was destroyed and equal access to education, culture, science, and sport has been guaranteed for all classes and social groups. Public space has been totally democratized. There are no private beaches, there are no private clubs, and there are no segregated parks as there were before 1959, where whites had to walk on one side and blacks on the other. It's a society in which everybody really has the same opportunities. However, not everyone has the same possibilities because possibility depends on what your family history, your lifestyle, and the conditions of your ancestors have been able to create for your development as a human being. 
But there is a wide enough field of opportunities for all children and young people who were born after 1959 to find space where they can advance and reach the maximum possible development. Therefore, in those first 30 years, there was a great social advance of black people in Cuba. It is very common for families like mine. I had a father who was a car mechanic and a mother who was a seamstress and made clothes to sell from home to be able to send their four children to university. In other words, it becomes natural for a working class or peasant family to send all their children to university or for a working class family to be able to pay the modest rent established by the revolutionary government and end up owning their own house. There is totally free access to public health care, and the most significant public health indicators begin to grow rapidly. Infant mortality decreasing, maternal mortality decreasing, and life expectancy is beginning to increase steadily, and people are living better. The families of this time are beginning to see the past of discrimination, inferiority, misery, and poverty as something that will not return and which we have to talk to the younger people about so that they will be aware of the achievements that must be defended. Why does the revolution have to be preserved at all costs? But there is great social tranquility, and there is a lot of faith in the future. People can dream of having a profession. People can have life projects. People can plan their future. And so that forever changed the lives of Black people in Cuba. And those achievements were maintained until 1989, 1990, because Cuban society at that time was still in a situation of lacking of raw materials and natural resources, but also because of Cuba's participation in and relationship with the world's socialist system. Cuba's economy was very dependent on the advances and successes of the nations that, headed by the USSR, declared themselves socialists on the European continent. When all that began to dissolve, when the USSR disappeared, when capitalism took over that beautiful European socialist project, Cuba was left alone with very few resources to face the situation. Cuba sees a 34% drop in GDP in three years. It is left practically without international partners, without markets for its products, and without suppliers of raw materials and food for production. Then begins what in Cuban history is known as a special period. When a crisis of that magnitude, of that depth, above all, of that length of time occurs, everyone begins to live wars. But those who go backwards most rapidly and most abruptly are those who do not have the resources to face the crisis. What happens then to the majority of the black and mixed race people in Cuba who constitute, as the poet Nicolás Guillén used to say, the middle class of talent? In other words, the revolution turns tens of thousands of people who have no material inheritance whatsoever into the middle class. The main inheritance they have is their education and their culture. And within that enlightened middle class, there are many black and mixed race people who, when the crisis of the special period arrives, have no way of avoiding a very significant and a very abrupt social regression. People became poorer. People's lives become more precarious. People's properties, such as the houses, for example, begin to deteriorate without people having the possibility or the economic resources to repair them. You indicate or you cite the proactive role of citizens in general and, and research and, and academic and governmental initiatives and anti-racism and 
anti-discrimination initiatives. But what about the participatory democracy, proactive role of citizens, of black citizens, mestizo citizens? What do you think they should be doing? How should they go about uh, playing a role in the anti-racism and the anti-discrimination? Well, first of all, everything that has to do with health, social security, citizen security, access to employment, culture, education, sports, which is much more than what most African-American countries have. Other countries which have not faced any crisis of the magnitude that Cuba has suffered and still suffers, among other things, and because of the blockade of more than 60 years by the United States government. Cuban society has created black, white, mestizo men and women with aspirations, culture, education, political capacity, and a willingness to change. And that in itself is a historical achievement. Now, where does the revolution fail in relation to blacks and mestizos? Well, I think that in the first place, there is a sense of idealism. All revolutions must have a large dose of idealism. Otherwise, they're not achievable. Revolution is a great act of imagination and creativity. You have to start fighting for a future that doesn't exist. You have to create conditions to get to what you imagine you can build. And one of the things that we and the leadership of the revolution thought when it triumphed is that by suppressing the social basis of racism and racial discrimination, and by destroying the infrastructure of capitalism, that racism was going to undergo a process of gradual extinction. That thought had a lot to do with orthodox Marxism, which conceives of ideology and culture as a reflection of the material base of society, and which therefore presupposes that if you make radical transformations in the material base of society, then the superstructure where ideology, culture, and products of thought are created will be adjusted. It has to be said that at that time, we were not very aware of the things that C.L.R. James had reasoned and written or of the things that Cedric Robinson had reasoned and written. And the elaborations of Marxist and Black nationalists who in the Caribbean, in the United States, and in the Third World were realizing that racism is not a reflection of anything, that racism is part of the way capitalism is structured, the way capitalism organizes labor force, the way capitalism creates hierarchy in society. Racism is part of the structure of capitalism, is not a reflection. But Cuba assumes interpretations forged fundamentally in the USSR and in Eastern Europe that assumes that racism will just end because the social structure of property was radically transformed or because the revolution has proclaimed the socialist vocation or because there is a high level of state ownership of the fundamental and non-fundamental means of production. What did racism do in Cuba? It hid in the attic. It crawled under the carpet. It moved to the darkest place in the house, waiting for its chance. How did racism live beneath the surface in the Cuban society in the 1960s, 70s, 80s? Well, in reference to aesthetics, black people were still convinced that we were less beautiful than the whites, that we had bad hair, that our features were not fine. Many white people continue to think that black people were less intelligent that they were less willing to work, that they were more likely to commit crimes. A lot of people continue to promote jokes with the most negative stereotypes of black people. In short, all that racism was lodged in the symbolic dimension, in the subjective dimension of social relations, and that's where it stayed. 
And that's when society realizes that there is a problem that it thought was solved and that in reality the problem is not solved. The problem is hidden. It is a cultural ballast. It is an ideological ballast. It is a social prejudice that was couched in the backwaters of society, waiting for the opportunity, waiting for the economic and social conditions to manifest itself with total naturalness. And then at the end of the 1990s, when the country began to emerge from the most acute face of the economic crisis, the struggle against racism and racial discrimination began again. Once again, led, reflected upon, and analyzed by Fidel, but with other conditions to consider, other problems, other strategies, and with other revolutionary practices. Because more than 30 years have passed since the triumph of the revolution, and historically, socially, and culturally, the country is different. That's what I can tell you about this situation of the failures, which in reality is more than simply failures. I think they are adverse factors. I think they are difficulties and obstacles that we had not foreseen from the beginning. I think that they are processes such as the economic crisis, aggravating circumstances such as the economic blockade that have social repercussions that affect people's daily lives with capacity to affect personal projects and the realization of people's lives must be taken into account when thinking about how to tackle the scourge of racism and racial discrimination. Thanks, Zuleika, for articulating that historical contextualization of how the revolution at the level of citizens and government have viewed and expressed racism and discrimination and, and the ensuing lessons and challenges. You know, some people argue that current racial discrimination as identified by Cubans in socialist Cuba, including members of the government having made these identification, that these are simply legacies of pre-revolutionary Cuba. Uh, Cuban social scientists and the Cuban government sort of formally pose racial discrimination as, as cultural and educational problems, sort of in traditional Marxist terms, sort of superstructural issues, if you will that are reproduced in homes, but not as a systemic problem from the perspective of Cuban socialist governance and government policies. Stepping back, how do you identify and evaluate racism and discrimination in Cuban society and Cuban socialist governance today? Uh, what do you think should be done, why, and, and how, how to go about it? Well, this last question of yours is very interesting. Well, in Cuba, there are two extreme groups, the Orthodox Marxists, those still attached to the Soviet Marxist manuals who say that racism is the remnant of slavery, that racism is the remnant of colonialism and underdeveloping capitalism that we Cubans have suffered for centuries. At the other extreme, there are some radical activists who say, hey, don't talk to me about slavery anymore. Slavery, that's a thing of the past. It's over 130 years since slavery was abolished. How long are we going to keep talking about it? No, 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 no. The problem of racism here is a different one and has nothing to do with slavery. It really seems to me that, like almost everything else in life, the truth lies somewhere between these two extreme positions. The relation that is established between skin color, physiognomy, and personal qualities comes from the colonial period that many Afro-American territories suffered. Racial classifications, the racist taxonomy that we still use today to describe and classify people, that was constructed by the colonialists. So you can't ignore the cultural foundations of that racism enthroned by the colonial exploiters. What is it then? What is it that the orthodox Marxists are not right about? 
So racism arrived here. And because our societies, where social relations are asymmetrical, where the situation of people is unequal, where there are still people who live very well at the expense of others who live very badly, society reproduces all these racist ideologies, makes them normal, naturalizes them, and embeds them in the forms of communication of each historical moment. Therefore, we have a racism that, born in the 19th century, has been updated, transformed, naturalized, and continues to be reproduced in the 21st century. Not to understand that is to be unprepared to fight against it. In a very socially fragmented society where white supremacism is still very strong, there is no attention being paid to the racist practices that are being reproduced and that are thriving there. In a socialist society where social relations are not as polarized, where social practices are more democratic, like in Cuba, one, therefore, has to have a slightly more trained eye to see how it works there. Look, my father and I never agreed on the issue of racism in Cuba. And we loved each other. We loved each other as father and child, like everything else, with our souls. But he died thinking that I was too demanding in relation to that issue, that I was unjustly disagreeing with him, and that I did not value the efforts of the revolution enough. But of course, my father is a man who was only able to study up to a fourth grade and who sat in a classroom as an adult to reach the sixth grade after the revolution triumphed. He is a man who started working at the age of 11, scrubbing cars, and little by little, he managed to become a car mechanic and earn a little more. He was a man who took 40 years to tell me, very ashamedly, that in the building where I was born, on that street where he and my mother pregnant with me and my one-year-old sister moved to live, there were two families that moved out of the building because my family members were the first black people that lived there. And those two families said, wherever black people are, we don't want to be there. And my father told me that story when I was 40 years old because he was embarrassed. So it's normal he saw things one way, and I see things in another way. And many times, when there was a discussion about a specific issue, there came a time when I knew that we were not going to understand each other. I would say to him, what for you is a conquest of the revolution, for me is a right, because I was born in Cuba. That's the difference. It's not the same for someone who had to fight to achieve something as it is for someone who received it at birth. The revolution gave them everything, and therefore they are a generation where it is much more difficult to hear criticism of the things that the revolution has not done to address racism. So there has to be a transmission of knowledge and experience that comes from social debate, social work, community projects, and citizen initiatives. What is happening in the country today, especially since the promulgation of a national program against racism and racial discrimination at the end of the year of 2019, is a national program directed by a group headed by the president of the republic, which gives maximum priority to everything that has to do with this social burden that in Cuba, as in all Afro-American territories that were colonies, and that developed a plantation economy still has the capacity to reproduce itself, to mutate, to adapt, and to culturally incorporate itself into the people. Today, we have many more advantages. We have this program. We have an experience. 
we have a shared knowledge, which is a construction of more than 25 years from the 1990s to the present. And a new activism has been emerging, often anchored in the neighborhoods, in the communities, but also in the study centers and in the labor collectives. There is especially in the last 20 years, much more interest in the Cuban Academy in researching these studies. Today, there is already a whole scientific and editorial production on these issues. You indicate or you cite the proactive role of citizens in general and, and research and, and academic and governmental initiatives and anti-racism and anti-discrimination initiatives. But what about the participatory democracy proactive role of citizens, of black citizens, mestizo citizens? What do you think they should be doing? How should they go about uh, playing a role in the anti-racism and the anti-discrimination? You can say that black people have developed a kind of antenna, a kind of sensor that allows us to detect discriminatory acts and racist predispositions, even without words. Sometimes I've walked into a high-end store and I felt the stairs behind me as if I was going to steal something. Other times I've been standing in front of a shop window because I want to buy an expensive perfume and that person who has to attend to me has been slow to come because she thinks I came into browse and that I don't have the money to buy the perfume. In short, I believe that yes, Black people have a type of sensitivity and a type of experience that gives us or develops in us a greater perceptive capacity. In other words, we have been developing all that methodology and all that perceptive capacity to deal with the problems that Cuba has today. And we have very important immediate challenges. One is the national program, which today is in a stage of diagnosis at the territorial level and a stage of implementation at the level of each of the 15 provinces and the special municipality of La Isla de la Juventud. And we have another important challenge, the 2022 census. And you will say, well, what about the census? Cuba has been doing a census for more than 100 years. Well, it turns out that according to the 2012 Cuban census, black people only make up 10.3% of a Cuban population. Only 10.3%. I was once at a seminar where there was a long debate about false racial affiliation. And there was a colleague who was very critical of mestizos who, when the census taker asked them, they say they are white and they are listed in the census as white. And some black people who, when the census taker arrives, tell him that they are mestizos. And he said that this is a false racial affiliation. And I told him that racial affiliations are not false. They're always true. At the same time that you register a racial affiliation, you are not only registering a skin color. You are registering qualities that society says correspond to that skin color. Blacks who register as mixed race behave as if they are mestizo. And mixed-race people who register as white behave as if they are white, even if they have curly hair. And if we really want to make progress in the fight against racism, not only in public policy, but in what people have here, first, we have to get people to recognize the physiognomic condition that they really have. Because it's true that races don't exist, but racism does. 
And racism associated with skin color, associated with hair type and facial features continues to have a lot of weight in the Caribbean populations and in some Afro-American populations. And there is a third challenge that I would like to mention before concluding, which has to do with alliances. The fact that there has been a radical revolution in Cuba and powerful institutions that really managed to change the rules of society that has generated an excess of confidence, an excess of sufficiency of the state and its institutional system, and consequently has generated an underestimation of activism. Public policies are very important. Revolutionary institutions are very important because they are the ones that establish the legal framework and the social reference for the actions of the citizens. But the work of consciousness racing is achieved in the places where people live, study, and work. And that is not possible without activism. The infrastructure of the state cannot reach all citizens, not even with the large student organizations and others that Cuba has. There is a need for person-to-person conversations. There is a need for neighbor-to-neighbor conversations. Today, we have taken an important step forward. The Cuban state now recognizes activism as an equal entity with many possibilities of helping the revolutionary institution. What is our next goal? That they work together. We already recognize each other. We know that we want the same thing, although we have different perceptions of problems and different ways of confronting the problem, because it's never going to be the same to see the problem from the perspective of the state institutions as from the perspective of social and political activism. It's not simply acknowledging that we're working on it independently of one another is that we agree to work together. It's that we identify common objectives. It's that we learn to reconcile our strategies. That is the challenge. It is a path that is just beginning, not only with anti-racist activism, but also with activism within the field of gender, also with activism that has to do not only with anti-racist politics and gender politics, but with other revolutionary and social tasks that contribute to the dignifying of the human species. I'm very optimistic. I have a lot of faith in Cuba's future in this field. Sometimes I despair. I would like us to advance faster. But I always think of something my father once told me in one of those discussions. I don't even remember what the problem was that had angered me, but we were debating for a while about how to solve it. And I was questioning the speed at which things were going. And my father said to me, it's not the same walking on a plane as it is climbing a mountain. On the mountain, the higher you are, the steeper the slope. The less the air reaches you and the slower you walk. Don't despair. I believe this is true. I believe that the Cuban revolution is that steep hill on which we Cubans have advanced up, leaving behind problems that our brothers in Latin America and the Caribbean have not resolved. But we are at a place on that slope where we can no longer look back. We have to keep walking, even if we are short of breath, even if we are tired, even if there are stones in the road, even if we don't see the end. Because a revolution is precisely that. It is to climb as high as you can to touch the clouds with your hand. I thank you very much, James, for giving me this opportunity to talk. Well, this, I think, has been an extraordinary examination and projection about 
a historical and contemporary problem that has been a fetter uh, on the development of nations and particularly uh, of indigenous and Afro-descendant citizens throughout our continent. Uh, the kind of historical examination and contemporary projections that Yuzuleka have offered us, I think, give us hope uh, that uh, what you're doing in Cuba, but how that also might benefit uh, to Latin America and the Caribbean, where the great majority of indigenous and Afro-descendants live, in the case of Afro-descendants, over 100 million. I want to thank you, Zuleika Margarito Romay Guerra, and I want to thank the People's Forum's New World coming audience uh, for giving attention to this and hope that you too will pick up some insights and lessons that you can utilize in your daily practice wherever you are. Thank you very much for this opportunity, and I'm sending you hugs. Hi. Thank you for joining us for this interview between James Early and Zuleika Romeguera, in which they discuss black identity in Cuba and the historical, cultural, and material conditions that shape it. They also talk about the important role of African descendants in the struggle for Cuban independence, from the first wars against Spanish colonial rule to the 26th of July movement. Zuleika also discusses what the anti-racist struggle looks like under socialism. And finally, Zuleika helps us understand the complexity of what comes after revolution and Cuba's relentless pursuit towards equality, especially in the context of constant imperial attacks. Like she tells us, revolution is a great act of imagination and creativity, where we must fight for a future that does not yet exist. The Cuban people have done this, and we who are in the center of US imperialism must defend their struggle as well as continuously draw inspiration from it. To watch future episodes and other political education and cultural content, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you, and see you next time. Where you gonna be standing when it comes?